Chapter Three of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Three: Logic and Interrogation Points. Sunday morning and a blue sky and sunshine. The rain of the night before quite vanished. So were the tears. Mrs. Burnham, presiding at the nine o'clock breakfast table, looked no paler than usual and felt more thankful in her heart than she had for a long time. The reason being that Erskine had coughed but twice during the long night, though the east wind generally set him into a perfect storm of coughing about midnight, and she had lain awake until long after that hour watching for it. The boy was radiant also this morning, dressed for church in a deep blue velvet kilt suit with a white collar and a knot of white velvet ribbon at his throat. The young ladies admitted, when alone, that Mama showed exquisite taste in dressing Erskine. The boy was happy over much the same thought that rested his mother's heart. He had slipped his plump little hands lovingly into hers on the way downstairs and questioned, Did I cough, Mama? Only two little coughs, my darling, and those were less hoarse than during the day. Then a gleeful little laugh rang out. Goody, I knew I shouldn't. I felt just as sure. Why, darling? Because that is a secret. And he reached up in tiptoe and whispered in her ear, I asked Jesus not to let me cough last night and worry you, and he said he wouldn't, and then, of course, I knew he wouldn't. And then the boy was kissed, long, clinging kisses, which had in them an element of pain. Would he grow up to be a comfort and an inspiration to her spiritually? Was this lonely mother to have help some day? The young ladies were in elegant morning costumes, made in a style which Ruth particularly disliked. Still, she admitted that they looked well in them, that is, as well as persons could look in fashions so devoid of grace as she thought these to be. Papa, said Miss Seraph, as she helped herself to another muffin, Suppose we go to town to church today? To town? What is the attraction there? Nothing very special. Only Patty Hamlin sings at St. Paul's this morning, for the first time this season, and I would rather like to hear her. I would rather like to see her, declared Miss Minta with a little laugh. I am never so very particular about hearing her, but if reports are correct, her costume will be something remarkable today. Her cousin Harold says it is stunning. Judge Burnham slightly frowned. Does young Hamlin frequently indulge in that style of language when conversing with ladies, daughter? What style? Stunning? Why, dear me, that is a very common word. So I think. Too common to be agreeable. Oh, Papa dear, don't you go to being a... What is the masculine for prude, I wonder? Seraph and I will be undone if you desert us and get to be over nice. There was a strong emphasis on the pronoun that referred to him. It marked, even in Judge Burnham's mind, the thought that his daughter wished to emphasize the fact that she considered her stepmother a prude. He felt that she ought to be frowned on for such an insinuation, but she looked so pretty and her eyes were full of such a winning light and her voice was so tender over the words, Papa dear, that he merely laughed. After all, she was young, and Ruth was very dignified, always had been. He admired it in her, he would not have her otherwise, 
but, of course, she should be able to make allowances for girls, and they meant no disrespect. Those were not the tones in which disrespect were offered. Nevertheless, he smoothed his face into gravity again and said, I confess I do not like slang, especially when addressed to a lady. I would not allow a young man to say much to me about stunning things if I were you. But about St. Paul's, Papa, if we are to go, you must eat your beefsteak faster than that. We shall want to take the ten o'clock train. This from Seraph. Why, I have no objection, since you young ladies are both of the same mind. His eyes happened to look into Erskine's as he spoke, and he noted the sudden, wistful flash in them. The boy was very fond of the cars and of the city, and, indeed, of going anywhere with his father. Do you want to go to town with us, monkey? The child's beautiful face was very bright for a moment, then became grave, and his eyes sought his mother. She was looking steadily at her plate, not even seeming to hear the conversation. So, with a little sigh, he answered, Not today, Papa, thank you. I will stay with Mamma. With Mamma? Well, how do you know but Mamma will come with us? Oh, I know she won't. Mamma won't ride on the cars today. There was marked emphasis on the word today. A chorus of laughter greeted him, and the little boy's sensitive face flushed. He looked quickly at his mother to know whether what he had said was a subject for laughter. But she had not laughed. She gave him a rarely sweet smile and said, Judge Burnham, will you have another cup of coffee? While Seraph was exclaiming, The idea! And Minta added, You dear little prig, who have you heard say that? Not any more, thank you, said Judge Burnham to his wife. Then, my boy, what is there wrong about going on the cars to get to church? We cannot walk there, you know. The child looked puzzled, pained, turned questioning eyes from father to mother, then back to his father's face again. Ruth did not know how to help him without openly showing discourtesy to his father. I don't know, Papa, the baby said at last. I mean, I don't know why it is wrong but I know Mama thinks so, and that makes it so. The trio laughed again, and Judge Burnham said, A loyal disciple, certainly, and as good a logician as the majority of overwise people. Then he looked at his watch. Well, Mrs. Burnham, according to this young champion against error, you will not join the party for St. Paul's? I advise you to do so. I do not believe you are equal to Mr. Beckwith's prosing today. I confess I hail any excuse for getting away. Thank you, said Ruth, as she tried to keep her voice steady. I do not care to go to St. Paul's today. Then she gave the signal for leaving the table. An hour later, dressed in deep black, she took her little boy by the hand and went down the wide-flagged street to the handsome new church on the corner that had taken the place of the desolate wooden structure that she had found when she first came. A pretty church it was, outside and in. From the handsome stained-glass windows to the soft Brussels carpet on the floor, there was nothing to offend an aesthetic taste or lead worshippers to St. Paul's for relief. The music, too, if not so artistic as that found in city churches, was cultivated, and the sweet-toned organ was well played. Rested and uplifted by the hymn and prayer, Ruth listened eagerly for the text, she felt so in need of help this morning. 
It was suggestive. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. This heart-burdened woman felt as though almost a miracle was needed to take the jarring elements of her life apart and set them into harmony. No heavy burdens, so called, but ten thousand little things, or what in our parlance are named little things, weighed down her heart, fettered her lips, filled her with a steadily increasing unrest. If only he would manifest his glory by showing his power in her heart and in her home, how blessed it would be! But, alas for Ruth, she listened in vain for that which would help her troubled soul. The sermon was a well-worded, logical argument in proof of the genuineness of miracles. Helpful, perhaps, for those who needed such proof, if there were listeners of that character. She looked about her curiously, wondering if any habitual attendants at that church had doubts in regard to the Bible miracles. The only one who possibly was skeptical in this direction, as in many others, was at this moment listening to the elaborate music in St. Paul's, and Ruth decided that if he were by her side, the sermon would not have helped him, for the simple reason that he had not enough interest in the question to care to be helped. As for herself, she had full and abiding faith in the fact that the Christ of Galilee had lavished miracles many and wonderful upon that favored people eighteen hundred years ago. What she wanted was a miracle for her today, in her heart and life. She went wearily out from the church, bowing coldly to the people on either side, stopping not to exchange other salutations with any. She had held herself almost entirely aloof from the new world which had crowded in on them, and hardly more than recognized even old acquaintances who had become her neighbors. The name given to this by many of her old friends was Pride, for the sudden rise of property all through that region had made Judge Burnham, who had been one of the rich men of the city before that time, almost fabulously wealthy in the eyes of the community, and Ruth Erskine had always been a proud girl, they said. What else could they expect of Mrs. Judge Burnham? But Ruth's secret heart knew that the knowledge of the fact that her choice of friends would be so entirely opposed to Judge Burnham's tastes and desires troubled her, and she held back the issue by retiring behind her mourning robes. Also, she knew that this condition of things must soon be changed. Her very mourning was one of the elements of courteous contention, if I may use such a phrase, between her husband and herself. She had not wanted to wrap herself in black for her father. It was true that she felt desolate enough to describe it to the world by the heaviest crepe it could furnish her. But, lingering over the deathbed scene, remembering the lighting up of her father's face as earth receded from him and heaven appeared, remembering the smile of unearthly radiance with which he finally entered in, it had not seemed fitting that she, a Christian, looking forward to the same entrance one day, should array herself in gloom and mourn as those who had no bright side to their sorrow. If it were wise or kind to make such distinctions, she had said to her sister Susan, I could wish that society would arrange that those whose friends have gone, without a gleam of light, into an unknown future, should wear the crepe and bombazine, and let us, who saw the reflection of the glory, signalize it by wearing dazzling white. But Judge Burnham was emphatically of another mind. 
He not only approved of the custom of wearing mourning, but he believed that it was a mark of disrespect to the dead not to do so. And for his wife to appear in any other than the deepest crape for her father would, he argued, be translated by his acquaintances into a story that there was some hardness between her father and her husband in their business relations, and in this way she would actually, if she persisted in her strange ideas, bring disrespect upon the living husband as well as the dead father. So Ruth did not persist. She let her mourning be of the deepest, gloomiest sort, and, truth to tell, was glad to hide her swollen eyes and quivering lips behind the heavy crape veil. But as the months passed, it was made apparent that no more emphatic had been Judge Burnham's desire to have the mourning worn than it was to have it laid aside at the earliest possible moment. One year, he argued, was as long as they ever wore mourning for a parent. And poor Ruth, who had always hated to do things for no other reason than because they did them, found herself shrinking from this change with a pertinacity which sometimes half frightened her. She could have summoned her Christian faith to the ordeal of facing the customs of society and worn no mourning at all. That would have been a tribute to the fact that her father had gone where they did not mourn. But to elect a certain day and hour in which to appear before the watching world and say, by one style of dress, Now my days of mourning are over, my father has been remembered long enough, I am ready for the gay world once more. From this she shrank so persistently, and dwelt on the disagreeable side of it so much, that she was growing morbid over it. This was the way matters stood on this Sabbath day, now nearly two years since her father had exchanged worlds. And Ruth, knowing that she must, sooner or later, yield, still hugged her mourning robes, and shielded herself with them from the society which she despised. Erskine danced merrily by her side, glad that the restraints of the church service were over, and he could have his mamma quite to himself. He and Ruth ate their luncheon alone. The party from the city could hardly arrive before the three o'clock train, and would probably lunch in some fashionable downtown resort. Despite the mother's earnest effort to put self in the background and make Sabbath a delight to her little boy, she but half succeeded. The afternoon wore away somewhat heavily to the restless child, and he broke into the midst of Ruth's Bible story with this irrelevant question. Mama, what makes it wicked to ride in the steam cars on Sunday? Ruth winced. She had no desire to enter into minute explanations with this wise-eyed child. Still, he must be answered. My darling, don't you remember Mama told you how the poor men who have to make the cars go cannot have any Sunday, any time to go to church and read the Bible and learn about God in heaven? I know, Mama, but the cars go all the same and the men have to work, and so why can't we ride on them? They wouldn't have to work any harder because we went along. The old questions, always confronting those who try to step ever so gently on higher ground than that occupied by the masses. The specious argument, which is in the mouths of rum-sellers and wine-bibbers and grown-up Sabbath-breakers all the world over. Surely not so astute a question, after all, since this baby presents it evolved from his own baby mind. Ruth could not help smiling faintly as she answered, That is true, my boy, but if we kept on taking the Sunday rides because others did, 
and because the train would go anyway, whether we went or not, how many people do you suppose we would by our actions set to thinking that perhaps it was wrong? And how long do you suppose it would be before the thinking which we set in motion would help to change the customs of Sunday trains? Deep questions, these, for a boy who had barely reached the dignity of five years. But he had grown up thus far at his mother's knee, and was accustomed to the grave discussion of all sorts of questions. The look in his eyes at that moment showed that he comprehended, at least in a measure, Ruth's meaning. He changed the line of argument. Papa rides on them. Ruth could hardly suppress a visible shiver. Here was the sore spot in her life thrusting its sharp point into her very soul, making it at times seem almost impossible for her to be loyal to her husband and true to her child. How was a wife to answer such a sentence as that? People think differently about these things, Erskine. You know Mamma told you we have to think about them and pray about them and decide what we shall do, not what somebody else shall do. Did Papa pray about this and decide? Won't Mamma's little boy leave Papa and everybody else out of the question just now, except his own little conscience, and tell me what he thinks is right? Well, Mamma, tell me this. When I get to be a man, will I think as you do or as Papa does, do you suppose? He never will understand, perhaps, this innocent boy, how his questions probed the mother's heart. God only knows, she could not help murmuring, and arose quickly with a pretense of rearranging the fire, but in reality to hide the starting tears. I mean, Mamma, he hastened to explain in a half-apologetic tone, dimly aware that he had in some way grieved his mother, I only mean I will be a man, you know, and do gentlemen think things are right that sometimes ladies think are wrong? Erskine, Mrs. Burnham said, resuming her seat and taking both the chubby hands into her own, tell me this, did God write one Bible for gentlemen and another for ladies? Why, no, Mamma. Then let me find a verse in his Bible about this for us to read. The place was found, and the low, sweet voice of the child repeated after his mother the earnest words, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, or finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The reading closed with a long-drawn, thoughtful sigh on the child's part, but the young logician kept his deductions to himself, for at that moment the party from the city heralded their return with the sound of merry laughter. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tricia G.